All right, welcome to another episode of the Macari Sellers Podcast. Today we have a friend of the show, somebody I wanted to have on prior to these elections so that when we call him back after the elections, we can tell him how much he was wrong about. Um, <laughs> none other than my good friend, friend Ron Brownstein from, you may know him from Twitter, you may know him from the Atlantic, and you may know him from CNN. So Ron, what's up? Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me uh, here in the final, final frenzied hours I mean, practically speaking, though, unless your race is airtight, you've already won or lost. Races aren't won in the last week. Is that an accurate statement? Well, you know, I, I, I guess I don't have a, a super strong opinion about that. I mean, the, the best evidence that we have historically uh, are exit polls ask people when they decided. And sometimes the late deciders are different than the early deciders. I was looking at some of the 2018 races the, uh, the other day. Um, you know, and then there's the, the the bigger question is whether that, as you know, kind of an old saw in politics is that incumbents get their poll number and that whatever, and, and if you're an incumbent under 50, even if you're ahead, you have to be scared because most of the undecided uh, in the in the final in the last polls, which which I assume are coming in, you know, right about now, uh, will go toward the challenger. I mean, that used to be considered a hard and fast rule. I don't think, like everything else, I mean, it seems a little less hard and fast than it used to be. Um, but I I still think that the 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 character of the voters who decide at the end is a little different because they tend to be people who are kind of checked out, you know, and and who are not really participating in the arguments between the parties. And to the extent that is true, I think that is a problem for Democrats this year because Democrats have, have made this closer than the fundamentals would argue because of their success at framing some arguments about Republicans. And it may be that these last voters are not really tuned into those arguments and they're just more reacting to gas and groceries and you know things like that. So I don't know. I uh, you know I, I I don't really have a strong opinion about how much the last few days tends to matter, but I have a feeling that the late deciders will probably not be hugely friendly to Democrats. So before we dive into the midterms too much, um, just a question I've I've had for you, and I, I wanted to ask: What keeps you on the national political beat in like this post-truth? post-Trump environment, how hard is it to do real journalism, particularly where you are in the numbers in the weeds where facts actually matter, but there's such an appetite for nonsense and just practically speaking, people make shit up. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely harder and it's you know obviously different. I, the first presidential campaign I covered was 1984. So I think that would be 10 that I have done. Um, you know, and we see um, you know, misinformation, obviously, you know, uh, fake uh, images on Twitter and, uh, you know, people broadcasting things that are palpably untrue, but like kind of a new dimension of that in kind of the political world are kind of these, and, and this is mostly almost entirely from the Republican side, these Republican partisan polls that kind of like flood you every day, you know, with per very, uh, slanted results designed to change the models that people look at at real clear politics, which is not a, which is not a straight shooter anyway. I mean, they're you know kind of a right leaning site that that is trying to uh, promote Republican candidates, and then five thirty eight, which I which I think is more of a straight shooter. But you know, you get all this stuff every day: Trafalgar, Insider Advantage, you know, whatever the other ones are, and. It's just this constant barrage of 
you know, polls showing Herschel Walker and Mehmet Oz winning 35% of black voters, you know, and, and, and so, you know, suddenly you have a dialogue about, you know, oh my God, you know, and then you, and then you have the Washington Times and the Washington Examiner is like, you know, collapse and, and, you know, Axios, which is kind of bought into, you know, it's kind of positioned itself as kind of on the forward edge of perpetual doom for Democrats. So there, there's this kind of, uh, uh, noise that's out there constantly, and you you do have a sense of a journal as a journalist that the audience that kind of cares about what's actually happening is less than it used to be. It's not zero; it's still you know considerable. I mean, the the combined audience for the three network newscasts last time I looked was still over twenty million. Each of them still drew more than any cable you know show, uh, and they're they pretty much play it down the middle. Um, uh, so there, there is still an audience, but there's no question that, that you know, the, the tribalism uh, affects every institution. I, you know, I get asked this, I get, uh, I get asked this a lot. I don't think the media is that different than any other institution. I really feel like the, the core situation we're in is a lot like the 1850s. In the 1850s, there was no institution in American life that could completely transcend the sectional divide that was equally credible on both sides of the North-South divide. And I think that is now true of the red-blue divide. Every institution, you know, look at Disney. I mean, look at, look at you know, look at what's happening with Disney or what shows people watch or how people feel about the police or the military or, or the courts. Everything is seen through that prism and the media is really no exception. Mm. I mean, that's a mouthful. Let's talk about in the midterms. Let's just dive right in. How um, do candidates, Democratic candidates in particular, uh, navigate what is a seemingly decently unpopular president in terms of his approval ratings? And how will that affect things in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, New Hampshire, although I'm, I think New Hampshire's probably gone, and Nevada, which I think actually will go to Republicans. Do you distance from Biden? How do they play this um, back and forth? So, I mean, this is this is extraordinary. I mean, to take one example, the New York Times Siena College polls that came out in Nevada, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, and Arizona at the beginning of this week. Um, if you look at every fundamental in that poll, Biden's approval, attitudes about the economy, which party you want in control of the Senate, the results are ominous for Democrats. I mean, they're as ominous as they could be. And yet, in the head-to-head, -head, they had three of the four Democrat candidates ahead by at least three points, and the other one tied. And that's kind of the, the situation we're in. Um, on a national basis, and, and even in the, the battle, and certainly even more so in the battleground states, a majority of the public disapproves of how Biden uh, is is handling the job of president, as you know, and you have significant uh, disapproval on crime, on the border, and on the economy, and especially inflation. And on all of those questions, voters, again, in the latest polling out today, prefer Republicans by somewhere like 20 to 25 points, say Republicans would be better at handling this problem than Democrats. In, uh, in polling in September, uh, in, the, um, uh, NBC, uh, in the NPR PBS Marist poll, and again, just this week in the Wall Street Journal poll, a significant, basically two to one uh, majority said that Biden's economic policies have made the economy worse not better 
uh, and, and Gallup comes out today and says attitudes about the economy, and this is kind of interesting, uh, you know, are, are the weakest, are the, are the most pessimistic that they have recorded since they've been asking the question in the early 1990s. So all of that argues for towering red wave, right? Um, but that is not what we're seeing in the generic ballot, which is essentially staying at around a two-point Republican lead. And it is certainly what we are, not what we are seeing in the Senate and governor races. Um, uh, obviously, there are Democratic candidates under significant pressure. But we are seeing, particularly in these statewide races, Democratic candidates run further ahead of Biden's approval than we have seen candidates from either party do really for 30 years. Uh, there, there are vanishingly few examples, you know, Manchin and Reed in 2010, for example, of candidates who have run eight, 10 points ahead of the approval rating of the president in their state when they were running for senator or governor. And, you know, there are a lot of Democrats doing that right now. You know, Mark Kelly's doing that. Uh, uh, John Fetterman is six, seven, eight points ahead. Um, uh, Warnock I mean, is even, eight, nine, ten. Even Sherry, B, Sherry Beasley is yeah. points ahead. Yeah, seven. Eight. So, like, so there are two questions. You know, all of that leads you to this question like, okay, can they sustain it? I mean, can they defy that history? What would allow them to defy that history? And in the Senate races, I believe what is allowing them so far to defy that history is that in all of these battleground states where Biden's disapproval is over 50, um, there is also a plurality or majority that views the Republican Senate candidate unfavorably, right? I mean- yeah, they, choose, so they choose bad candidates. Like this won't, this would not be close. I'm of the belief this would not be close if they didn't have the Trump factor in their primaries. I think that's, I think in a lot of these states, if you had a generic Republican, you know, kind of suburban, you know, re former real estate agent, uh, state legislator, uh, who is who is kind of a zero, uh, um, you know, running uh, against some of the, yeah, in some of these races, I've got to think they would be in a better position. But but the Trump factor is not immaterial, because, you know, basically, uh, you, you, I have described this as a double negative election. Clearly, we have a majority that is unfavorable to Biden uh, and that views and that believes he has not managed the presidency well, particularly the economy. Um, but if you ask, as NBC polling done by McInturf and, uh, and Hart, bipartisan leading Democratic and Republican firms, if you ask whether you agree with most of what Republicans in Congress and most of what Trump wants to do, a majority say no. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we, we you know, so we're, we're testing uh, uh, by the traditional metrics of presidential approval, and not only nationally, but in the key states, Republicans should win an awful lot of stuff next week. And the fact that they are not yet clearly doing that, although the House might get up to somewhere around the national average since uh, World War II of two dozen seats, uh, the fact that they're not clearly doing that is a sign of how many voters remain uneasy about what the Trump era Republican Party means for their rights and their values and democracy itself. Zooming out a little bit, if you would have asked many people this past summer, they would have said that Dodds would be the issue that carries the day. Um, not sure that's still the case, but it's also still there. Gas prices are down, but inflation is still a salient line for Republicans. Have you seen issues drive polling and send them into data? Do you think next week's results will tell us more 
about candidate quality than it does about the substance of these campaigns? Um, obviously, candidate quality matters in the way that we've been talking about, but I actually do believe that issues like abortion and democracy <clears throat> have mattered. I mean, uh, they are a big part of the reason why these very negative judgments on Biden's performance have not produced a more overwhelming or decisive Republican lead. I mean, uh, there, there is a portion of the electorate that is remains very focused, as I said, on what the Republican Party and the Trump era means for their rights, which include abortion and their values uh, and democracy itself. And those issues uh, energized enough Democrats to keep them in the game in a way that they might not have been if we were just having an election that was about Republicans feeling energized as the out party always does because they think the Democrats have screwed everything up and Democrats being dispirited because Biden didn't do nearly as much as they want, you know? So I think all of those things have mattered. I think they have changed the playing field, but they're not, you know, they are not the predominant issue for the majority of voters. I mean, I kind of, I kind of look at this both ways. I, and I think, I think that the election will justify both of these interpretations. Uh, on the one hand, I think if you are the Democrats, the message of next week is going to be that, that you cannot rely on uh, uh, concern about Republicans over democracy and what they will do to your basic rights to produce a, a winning majority if people are this discontented over the economy, that you can't trump the economy, as it were, with concerns <laughs> about democracy and rights. Um, the flip side, I think it may, may also be true, which is that, and, and we'll see how bad this gets, but if it, if it comes in where Republicans win somewhere in the 18 to 25 Senate House seats and either don't take the Senate or maybe get only a net one at 9% inflation, it would tell you that there is an upward ceiling on their potential support uh, uh, defined by this resistance to them on those other fronts um, that would lead you to be concerned about what their coalition will look like if you don't have 9% inflation in two years, right? I mean, don't forget, an equivocal result with 9% inflation is really kind of, and, and 42% you know, national approval rating for the president is really a warning sign for both sides. I mean, when you put it like that, it's, it just shows that politics is as disjointed as those people who are disillusioned make it out to be. <laughs> they might actually be right. We just need to throw our hands up. Let's talk about some specific states. Can a black yeah. man named Mandela go to the United States Senate? Wisconsin is a funky state. How does Wisconsin give you uh, Tammy Baldwin and Ron Johnson? And does Mandela Barnes stand a chance? It looks like he's always trailing by one or two points going into yeah. I mean, you know, Ron Johnson, I mean, this is, again, this is, this is the kind of place where the double negative dynamic really comes in. Ron Johnson, traditionally, may be different on election day, but usually, you know, in polling, a majority of the voters say they have an unfavorable view of Johnson, who is kind of a conspiracy theorist and says really strange things. Um, but Biden's approval is in the low 40s. Um, and I think, uh, given the, the, the way in which Republicans Republicans pounded Barnes on crime without Democrats having a great response for quite a while. Um, I, I, it, it's just, this is a state where, you know, essentially, I, I think it's like 90% of the vote is white. 
and non-college whites who are the you know core Republican constituency now are a majority of the voters uh, more than they are in Michigan or Pennsylvania, um, more like Ohio. Um, uh, in this environment with Biden this low, it's this is a hard one to imagine Barnes getting over the top. Yeah. That's and Ohio, Ohio is kind of similar. Oh, that was next. That was a natural segue. You must do TV, Ron. Yeah. Ohio. I thought Ohio was going to turn the corner. I mean, but then you, I feel like there's something I don't know because the DSCC is usually the smarter arm of the mm. Democratic Party. And if they're not weighing in, what does that tell you about whether or not Ohio is really turning the corner? Well, again, so we're talking about a state where, in this case, only about 80% of all the voters are white, uh, but a majority of the voters are non-college whites who are trending Republican anyway on cultural issues, but are also like Latinos and uh, young, particularly younger black voters really you know, head on facing the, the squeeze of inflation. Uh, Ryan is a great candidate whose personal image is stronger than Vance's, uh, but you know, you're talking about having to win probably nine or 10 points of voters who disapprove of Biden. And that is a lot. Uh, and most, and many, you know, uh, he has kept this very close, but as a Democrat, those last few points are really, really hard to find. Uh, um, you know, he's, he, he, is, he is running well with black voters. He's running very well, especially given the inflation with college educated white voters. Um, but finding those last few points in this environment, while not impossible, uh, is not easy. I mean, you know, basically I think you know, we're, we're talking about, um, uh, I, I do believe, you know, we've, and we've, you, we've both talked about this a lot over the years. I mean, the class inversion is very real where uh, Democrats now run better among college educated white voters than non-college white voters. That's the exact opposite of the, the world that existed from really 1932 to 1992, more or less, uh, at least from the thirties to the seventies, Democrats ran better among non-college than college whites. And then from like, Reagan era through 92, 96, it was about even. They ran about the same among both. And then starting with Gore in 2000 and every election thereafter, they've run better among the college and the non-college whites. And that's largely, as everyone knows, was listening because of cultural issues um, and racial issues um, uh, and all of this accelerated under Trump. But inflation you know, pushes further at that seam itself because um, uh, inflation is, uh, in, in white collar suburban communities, inflation is real, but it's more of an inconvenience than an existential threat. And I think in more working class communities across racial lines, it is, you know, it is more of a severe and immediate threat. And that's why uh, Nevada is such a at such risk for Democrats. You know, it is a low wage state. And there are a lot of Latino workers uh, and families who are really living without a lot of economic cushion and who don't feel like they have a lot of leeway to think about whether abortion rights or whether Republicans are too extreme on immigration. They just know things cost too much and they want to try the party that isn't in charge of things. Well, and let's go to Nevada. I was going to go to Georgia, but let's go to Nevada. We, what we've seen are very, very sluggish mail-in ballot numbers, uh, early voting numbers out of Nevada. Uh, Clark County's cushion as of the taping of this was only about 21,000 votes, which isn't going to get it done. Uh, why hasn't uh, Cortez Masto been able to better leverage her incumbency? Or is, I believe his name, first name is Adam, but is Laxalt just the normal kind of zero? I know he's run a few times, yeah. but is he just a normal type right. of candidate that can 
make it and navigate in this environment? I, I, I think, I, first of all, I do not rule out Masto winning only because the Nevada Democratic Party has shown the capacity to win close races over the last 15 years. So and the I Clark don't County, the Clark County Democratic Party is literally the best county party in the country. And, and the Culinary team. Workers Union or, you know, the best uh, kind of probably turnout operation. But th the core problem is that uh, few states have been hit harder by the double whammy of the pandemic that shut down the tourist industry. And then inflation, uh, as, as we've come out of that, that have really uh, hit hard on, as I said, a lot of low wage Latino workers. Um, and, you know, um, for a lot of these voters who are feeling squeezed by inflation, the calculus is no more complicated than what it's been through history, which is that the party inside, you know, in power seems to have screwed things up. So let's give the other guys a chance. I mean, I, I was reading a quote like that today in the, in the, in the Wall Street Journal poll, it, like essentially that was the entire analysis. Democrats have had their chance and my grocery bills are too high. So let's give the other guys a chance. And that's what I was saying, you know, maybe 90% of the electorate, 88% of the electorate are in fact tuned in to the arguments between the parties, to the ideological arguments between the parties, to the questions of whether Trump is or is not a threat to American democracy as we've known it. But there are a good 10 to 15% of voters you know, who just don't relate to any of that, who think that all politicians are lying, who don't want to listen to any of them. They think they're all corrupt. Therefore, are Republicans really more of a threat to democracy than Democrats? Um, and they're voting essentially primarily on current conditions, which is, you know, what, what we've historically thought midterms are driven by. Um, and I, I think that's the problem in Nevada above all. But your other point is well taken. I mean, Laxalt is not Herschel Walker or Blake Masters or Don Boldick or Mehmet Oz. He's, he's a little bit more of an off-the-shelf generic Republican. I mean, he has some vulnerabilities in terms of election denying and all, but he is a little bit more uh, uh, generic. Um, and, uh, and thus, if voters are inclined to say, let's try something different, they don't really have to go through that second stage that they do with a Walker or a Masters. Let's talk about Walker real quick, because I have a couple of theories in Georgia that I'm trying out with you today before I use mm. them on TV next week. And you can steal them if they're if they're yeah. bad. But one, I think Warnock wins narrowly. I do. I just think he wins narrowly. And I think he, I pray he wins narrowly next Tuesday, but it's probably going to be in December. Okay. That's first. But I think that it'll be because of a combination of really targeted ticket splitting between Kemp and Warnock voters. And Republicans who will vote for Kemp, but skip the race, um, skip the Herschel Walker race. And then I think that uh, Black men in particular are folks that are responding negatively to what Herschel Walker represents in comparison to the economic mm -hmm. plan that Kemp puts forward. What mm -hmm. do you think about those things? I definitely, I also think that Warnock will lead in the first round. Um, I think there are enough suburban white voters who will vote for Kemp and, as you say, either vote for Warnock or not vote for Walker. Um, again, this is very similar to what we were discussing in other states um, where Biden's approval is low. I mean, we're talking low in Georgia, probably under 40 percent. Oh, it's not a probably. It is. I mean, it's yeah, right. Biden's right. I mean, the, I'm trying to remember what the the, the, the New York Times, 30. Siena, I think, was 39. I think the Atlanta Journal Constitution was even less, right? Um, 
And other than Joe Manchin in 2010 in West Virginia, I'm not sure I can think of a candidate, Senate candidate in either party who has won a Senate race in a state where a president from their own side was under 40. Um, but uh, again, looking at that New York Times, Siena poll, only 43%, and you might say only, uh, uh, only 43% said they thought Walker basically was capable of, under, you know, Walker understood the issues that he would have to deal with uh, as a senator. And a significant majority also said, you know, they did not like the way he conducts himself. So, um, um, oh, oh, and the last piece, Bakari, is that notwithstanding all of that, in that poll, and this is probably true in Arizona as well, more people said they wanted Republicans to control the Senate than said they wanted Democrats to control the Senate. So like, how do people square all that? Like, you know, I mean, I think on Tuesday when there are 30, was it 34 Senate races or 33 Senate races, the question of control becomes diffused a little bit. Um, you know, it's the, the idea that like, this is the race that will decide control might seem a little abstract to people. I do think if you get to the runoff, and if Fetterman wins and Masto loses, and Georgia is literally the race that will decide control, that's when that could be a more perilous situation for Warnock. That is perilous for us all. Um, am I right I to write out? Don't you think? I mean, like, I, I, I think that I, I don't think people see it. And I mean, clearly, if you look at someone like Oz or Walker, they are gonna run above their personal favorable rating uh, and masters. And that says that there are people who don't like them but are gonna vote for them anyway because they want Republicans to control the Senate. That's what that number tells you. But are there enough of those people, right? Are there, you know, in the case of Walker, are there eight points of those people? We could ask that in the same way we ask, are there 11 points of people who disapprove of Biden and are gonna vote for Warnock? That's why I call this a double negative election where you've got, uh, that was my CNN piece on, on, uh, on Monday, was the, the control of the Senate unequivocally, I will say flatly, control of the Senate will be decided in states where, where most voters uh, are negative on Joe Biden's job performance and also negative on their personal assessment of the Republican Senate nominee. Those states and those voters, by the way, give you one, um, uh, give you one kind of data point on that. Um, uh, uh, in Arizona. And I think, I, I suspect Georgia has to be similar just mathematically, although I have not gotten anybody to run it for me. In Arizona, you know, Walker is ahead in all of the late polling narrowly, even though Biden's disapproval and unfavorable is somewhere around 54, 55%, which is a lot. Um, and in polling from the local pollster, OH Predictive Insights that they ran for me, one fifth of the voters who were unfavorable to Biden were also unfavorable to masters, right? Okay, that's the double negative. And among those voters, those double negative voters who are unfavorable to Biden and unfavorable to masters, Kelly was leading by more than eight to one. And I guess if we did that in Georgia, it would look about the same. Yeah, you know, that just shows same. you that those guys are not have bad candidates. I think that talks to candidate strength more than anything else, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but I'm saying, like, I bet if we could get the numbers in Georgia, we would find that there are probably 20% of voters who, or, you know, somewhere 18 to 20% of voters who are unfavorable to Biden and unfavorable to Walker, and they are giving uh, Warnock, uh, you know, a 20, 30 point lead.
I, I would bet that's what that that. So uh, on election night, when we're both uh, you know sitting on the set, that's what I'm going to be emailing Jennifer at the polling unit because I've already primed her on it because because we talked about it this week for my story. You know, remember in 2016 there was such a big deal made about the voters who were negative on both Clinton and Trump and how most of them voted for Trump. Well, there weren't as many of them in 2020 who were negative on both Biden and Trump. There are going to be a lot of them yeah. in this election, and they are probably the decisive group of voters. Is Ron DeSantis, excuse me, is Charlie Chris dragging down Val Demings in Florida? Because I, I would, I, I love Val, but I think that race is about over. I, I, I just think they're both, you know, facing the same you know, essential Florida has moved. I mean, Florida is a state that has moved toward Republicans in the Trump era. You know, it, it is not the Obama, Clinton, you know, two point either way state anymore. And um, uh, the, you know, the ability of Democrats to win even a modicum of those college, non-college, non-urban white voters has, has almost completely collapsed. The retirees on the west coast of the state have become even more Republican. And then, you know, you see what's happened in South Florida uh, among culturally conservative Hispanics. So I, I don't think that is going to be on the board in 2020. You know, Ohio and Florida. I mean, when I started covering politics, certainly Ohio, and then like Florida. I remember, I remember, Bakari, the weekend before the election in 1996, I went to Tampa and wrote a long piece in the LA Times about whoever wins the I-4 corridor is going to be president because it's the tipping point of American politics. You know, not so anymore. And we yeah. went to like a hundred years running where the person who won Ohio won yeah. the White House. Yeah. I mean, now what's the tipping point now? The tipping point now is probably the suburbs of Phoenix and Atlanta. And uh, yeah, and I, I would also argue that the tipping point, which brings me to my next race, uh, has a lot to do with the turnout in Philadelphia. Mm. I think if Philadelphia turns out in numbers that are intense the way Philadelphia can, then Pennsylvania goes to Fetterman. What, what do we look like in that race? And I guess I'll just ask you these two as the final, the final two, because I think the two biggest pickup opportunities, one you'll agree with, one may shock you, is Pennsylvania, and number two is North Carolina. Interesting, North Carolina. Um, North Carolina has probably benefited, the Democrats have probably benefited from flying under the radar, right? It hasn't really attracted that huge national spend and nationalizing of the race. You know, essentially as, as we started off, um, you know, uh, voters majority disapproval of Biden on crime, the border and inflation in every poll nationally. And I'm sure in all of these key states. So therefore the Republicans, you know, their, their, their mission is pretty simple. Just run ads linking the candidates to Biden uh, at this moment. Um, uh, now that, you know, I don't know how much that has happened in North Carolina because it hasn't, you know, it hasn't really become that kind of national flashpoint, which as I say, Democrats in general are trying to personalize and localize these races. And she has benefited from that. I mean, again, in this environment, in a state that is, you know, probably is a one point, you know, two point Republican lean, uh, Ordinarily, it's really hard to imagine it falling in 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 a climate where, you know, Biden's approval is this is this is this troubled. Um, but you never there are always there are always some surprises. Fetterman, look, I mean, Fetterman is the Democrats' insurance policy, right? It's a 50-50 Senate. 
Um, there's always the possibility of a surprise on either side. I mean, Republicans could surprise in Arizona or Washington or New Hampshire. Democrats could surprise in Ohio uh, or North Carolina or Wisconsin. But most likely, whoever wins two out of three from Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Georgia controls the Senate. I mean, I'm not telling you anything that isn't conventional wisdom. And Pennsylvania is the insurance policy uh, that allows Democrats to lose either Nevada or Georgia, but not both, either. And if they win Pennsylvania, they offset that, and they're still at 50-50. So it is absolutely critical. I think um, without the stroke and the health issue, uh, it would be close because these are close states. But Fetterman would, would I think they, they've done enough to disqualify Oz that they would clearly win. I still think they are likely to win. Um, I think Fetterman can do just a little bit better among blue collar whites. I think he will get a significant margin in the white collar Philly suburbs, although again, not as big as Biden because 9% inflation, you know, everybody, everybody fills up their car. Um, and there are probably a lot of SUVs out there that don't get very good gas mileage. So, um, you know, you have a lot of suburban moms who are doing, who are, you know, shelling out $80 more than they, than they, uh, they expect to. Um, and, and, you know, in the, in the, in the um, serious nonpartisan polling, I mean, he has a significant lead, you know, an 80 point lead among black voters. The question is there and in many other places, uh, younger black voters. I mean, the Institute of Politics stuff polling, you know, shows younger black voters and to some extent younger Latino voters, but the biggest decline from 18 and 20 to now is younger black voters. I mean, that is a, that is a, in terms of level of interest in the campaign. Um, and let's face it, Biden was never that popular among younger voters. Um, and so you're, you're talking about with younger voters you know, essentially in national polling and in most state polling, Democrats are still are running 60 to 65 percent, whereas Biden's approval rating among them is like 38 to 43 percent. Like, is that really possible? I mean, could they run 25 points above Biden's approval? Uh, they might, um, but it is it is it has always been a weakness of his, and it continues to be one. His his lack of connection with younger voters, and particularly younger voters of color. So we they Republicans take the House, yes? Yes. Well, by the way, since the Civil War, there are only four midterms where the party out of the White House did not gain at least five seats, which is what Republicans need to win the House. So yes. I mean, the issue is whether Democrats can keep it down enough that they uh, keep the losses down to the point where they could conceivably win it back in 2024. One thing that people... I think have been surprised by is that when redistricting ended, there were 226 House seats that Biden won. Yes. Right. I mean, I was surprised by that. Um, and so if you can keep it down and you don't have that many incumbents, you know, in these seats, uh, there is a chance for Democrats to win it back in 2024 uh, if, if they can keep it down. I think that's got to be their realistic goal. And also, also, the closer it is, the less likely Republicans will have any type of unanimity yeah. Um, when it comes to governing governor's mansions. Um, I mean, I don't think that Westmore in Maryland is getting enough credit. And I don't also don't think we're paying attention to the governor's mansion in Nebraska, which seems to be, is it Nebraska, yeah. Oklahoma, 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 I mean, Oklahoma there has been a bunch of polls that have been close and presumably a backlash on abortion and other issues. Others say, 
you know, it's a Republican state and, and a Republican leaning year, not going to happen in the end. Uh, on the governor's mansions, you know, you can imagine Democrats losing Nevada. You can imagine them in this weird situation, possibly losing Oregon, though I don't think that, again, I don't think either of those are baked. Um, uh, uh, but um, you could also, they're obviously going to win back Maryland and Massachusetts. Uh, the key is really whether there are going to be uh, uh, people in charge in the key swing states who are uh, going to play fair in 2024. I mean, for Democrats, holding the governorship at, in, uh, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin is like, you know, right up there behind, I, I would say that's their number two strategic goal behind holding the Senate, because obviously a Republican governor in any of those states uh, would both be in position to sign legislation, making it harder to vote, but also enormously complicate the task of, um, uh, of, of certifying a potential Democratic win in 24. Arizona looks like there's two polls where the severe election denier conspiracy theorist Republican Secretary of State nominee Mark Fincham has fallen behind. And uh, the Nevada comparably severe election denier, conspiracy theorist, secretary of state, Republican nominee, seems to be narrowly behind. I, I think in Arizona, that Republican will lose. Nevada, who knows, right? I mean, not that many people follow secretary of state races closely. And if it goes badly for Democrats overall, that could, could fall out for them as well. Um, uh, and the Arizona governorship, you know, is still a toss up, but it goes to a larger point that I that I would love to say before we run out of time, which is, you know, there are Carrie, you know, Carrie Lake is a severe election denier conspiracy theorist who is the Republican nominee for um, for a governor in Arizona. There are a majority of Republicans who have been nominated for everything. The Washington Post say says, you know, are election deniers. It is not mathematically plausible that the Democrat running against all. Of them are going to be good candidates. They are going to be clinkers against that many election deniers. And, and, and Katie Hobbs might be a clinker. And so long as 90% plus of Republicans reject the Liz Cheney test, Liz Cheney put you know, a bright line and said, you should not vote for someone who is an election denier and a threat to the, the sanctity of future elections, even if you agree with them on other issues. Well, 90% plus of Republicans are rejecting that line. And as long as they do, and as long as they are willing to vote for people who are, you know, who, who are election deniers and who are threats to the administration of future elections, some of those people are going to win because not all of the Democrats running against them are going to be, you know, A-team candidates. And so the crisis is coming and you know, the, the, the idea that you have the majority block in one of our major parties viewing democracy as essentially disposable, if that's what it takes to impose their agenda, is a kind of a threat and crisis we have not faced since arguably the antebellum South was the dominant faction in the Democratic Party and was perfectly willing to subvert democracy to spread slavery. You know, I mean, we, like we really haven't seen this since John Calhoun, you know, um, and I don't think I think the crisis if uh, if any of these candidates win, it, we're going to be getting deeper and deeper into this crisis, by the way, also, if they lose, I mean, what happens, 
What do we think is going to happen if Carrie Lake is 7,000 votes behind in Arizona? You, you think she's going to go away quietly? Yeah. yeah, you won't. And by the way, we've run, the DGA has run the absolute worst campaign possible in Arizona. Anyway, Ron Brownstein, we love you. And everyone can check you out for all of your amazing analysis next week on CNN all week and read whatever you write as a postmortem uh, and autopsy in the Atlantic. So thank you for joining us again and we'll revisit you soon. All right, thanks for having me, man. All right, peace be easy.